keep your hand in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to come back there, but I do want you to go to the book of Jude. The reason for reading Zechariah will become evident uh, later in the message. This week, I um, attended the Deerfield Fair. I saw many of you there. And um, walking around the fairgrounds and seeing a variety of people there, um, I am the one that kind of reads what people are, are saying and putting out about themselves by what they wear reading what people have on their t-shirts, which probably isn't always a good idea. Um, but I found myself doing that. And one thing that was very apparent to me that I came away with is that people are angry. And there's a great uh, angst among people about what's going on in society, about trouble in our culture, about certainly the direction of our nation, and they're making it known in some shocking kind of ways. Certainly you know that. If you have a news feed of any kind, you probably get stories fed right to wherever you get your news that you read and, and perhaps make you angry. And you would say, I can't believe that is happening. I can't believe that people would justify such things. Well, my question, what should we do? What should our response be as Christian people when people promote sin People are engaged in sin. What is a right response? As I was thinking about that this week and noting our text this morning, I think that Jude really helps us, specifically with what we look at today and how to respond to people who are struggling with sin, people who are perhaps trapped in sin, People who are headed for an eternity separate from God. We've been looking for several weeks at the little book of Jude and noting that we are to contend for the faith. It's given to all of us in this little book that that is what we are to do. This isn't solely for people in positions of authority in the church. It's for people right down into those seats where you're seated this morning. We are to contend for the faith, contend for the truth, the truth of God's word, not only in its doctrinal statements, but in an appropriate practice and living out what is true. Why is this the case? Well, Jude, if you'll look at verse 17, Jude, in addressing the faithful in the church, he says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, 
In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jude warns that what was predicted by the apostles is happening. We read in 2 Peter that Peter warns that this is what would happen. And Jude seemingly quotes Peter and says, and now it's happening, just like he said. And so he gives this warning by way of remembrance. And he says, remember, they said this was going to happen. And here it is. And what is happening is what Jude has described back in Verses 3 and 4 of how people have crept into the people of God unnoticed and how they have pushed a kind of licentious living. Living that denies the truth of the gospel and how they ultimately have denied the authority of Jesus Christ upon them. And so this is the problem that Jude says that this is what's going on. And so what must believers do? What should our response be? Verse 20. But you, beloved, in contrast to those causing division, these people that have not the Spirit of God, but you, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. You are to remain rooted in God's love for you by building yourselves up in your faith, verse 20, and praying in the Holy Spirit. And do this while waiting or anticipating the end of verse 21 for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So you have false teachers, influencers among the church and what they're doing. And here's the response of the faithful. You keep in the love of God, build yourselves up, pray in the Holy Spirit. But there seems to be a third category now that Jude is going to address. What about people in the middle, people that are being led astray by this false example, these false teachers that he's just identified? What what is our response to them? People who are not following after Christ, people who or weighing whether or not that's the right way to go. And some people that have just gone headlong away from him. I think this is exactly what Jude is addressing now, because look at verse 22. Here's our text for this morning. He says, And have mercy on those who doubt. He's speaking to the faithful of verses 20 and 21, and he says, Here's how you must behave toward people who are in the middle and they're doubting. Have mercy on them. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are those that are being influenced by these false teachers, false living among the congregation. And Jude says, here is your approach to them. The approach should be this. It should be mercy, verse 22. 
And it's appropriate for him to bring that up because the segue is right out of verse 21. Look at the end of verse 21. He's already said that we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not that we're so much different. We are sinful people. We too reject Christ's authority over us, and that bent is within us, but God has had mercy upon us. He's extended his mercy to us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, and there's a full realization of that mercy to come. It's when Jesus comes back again, you will not be condemned by him, but you will receive mercy. And because we have received mercy from God as God's people, mercy that covers our sin, then we, of all people, should be people that know how to extend mercy to others. That we extend compassion for those in great time of need. So I would put it this way, that since we have and ultimately will receive mercy from God when Jesus comes again, we right now should be merciful to other people in need. Other people who are in need of that same kind of mercy. So this morning I want to preach to you on this theme out of Jude 22 and 23, showing mercy. How do we show mercy? Who needs mercy? What's being spoken of here? Let's pray and ask the Lord to make this clear to us. Father, we ask for your help in these next few moments that we would understand the mercy that we have. And because we are fully aware of our own condition and the grace and mercy that we've received, that we would be gracious and merciful with other people. Lord, would you improve us by what we hear this morning and give us the grace to operate on it. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of people are in need of mercy? And in particular, what kind of people is Jude referring to? Well, I have to answer a question that arises out of the text this morning because there may be some of you here that have a different translation that you're holding in your lap. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version or even a modern English Version, when I just read verses 22 and 23, there was some significant difference in those verses. And the reason for those differences has to do with the manuscripts that underlie the translation of this text. There is one ancient manuscript that actually, when it comes to describing these people that need mercy, this one ancient manuscript describes not three classes of people like our English Standard Version does, but rather two classes of people. And therefore, it reads a little different. I know many of you do not have those translations in your lap, so I have it on the screen here for you. In the New King James Version, verses 22 and 23 read this way, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. 
You'll notice that this translation says there are two kinds of people. You need to have compassion on some, and the idea is, is make a distinction on those whom you should be compassionate toward. So I'm, I'm looking at people, I'm saying these people need compassion, I'm distinguishing between who needs that compassion, and therefore I'm showing them compassion, or mercy, our word would be. And then verse 23, but others, you ought to save with fear, just pulling them out of the fire, hating even those garments stained by the flesh. And so you see there's a divide of two kinds of people And the first kind is actually saying that the one showing the mercy needs to make the distinction about where to show it. However, most modern translations, including the New English translation, the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, even the New International Version, and of course our English Standard Version, actually gives three kinds of people. In the ESV it says, "...have mercy on those who doubt." Secondly, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Thirdly, there's others you need to show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. You can see where this is now three different categories that are delineated. Obviously, translators and commentators disagree. I think the better move in understanding this has to do with three kinds of people. Because of what Judah's talking about, we'll look at in just a minute at the end of verse 22. Who are those who doubt? Versus make a distinction. And as you've noticed, hopefully, through our study of the book of Jude, Jude has a penchant for threes. He seems to always give triplets, three of these and three of these and three of these. And it seems like this would follow a pattern of the author in his way of thinking, that now he's thinking of three groups of people, that need mercy from solid, well-grounded believers in a church ministry. Either way, whether you take it two or three, the message is not unchanged, or the message is not changed, rather. And the message is this. Since we have ultimately received mercy from God, we should be merciful to others in need. So who are these people? What kind of people does Jude specify? Who needs mercy? First of all, I want you to note that we must show mercy to those who doubt what is right. Look at verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. I would say that these people being specified by Jude are the ones who are least affected by these intruders. You have people coming into the church, they're trying to to make trouble, they are teaching things that aren't in accord with God's word, and they're living in ways that certainly aren't right. And it's affecting these kinds of people. Now they are in doubt about what they are to do. We're told that they doubt. The word has to do with, with making judgments. The underlying word is a word for judgment, like in the judgment seat. And it's talking about somebody who in their own mind is trying to make judgment. They're weighing things. What about this? And what about this? And they haven't landed anywhere. They're weighing things. Now I showed you before that in the New King James Version, it reads that have compassion on some making distinction. And what the translators are doing there is saying, this is actually talking about the person who is to show mercy. 
that they must weigh in their mind who they are to show mercy to. They're making distinction about that. But this word to doubt, when it's used as it is here in what we call the middle voice, it's talking about themselves doubting. It actually, in other references in the scripture, refers to people like this who are weighing different options and haven't come to settle on something. In fact, let me show you one of those references. Look back in your Bible to the book of James. James chapter 1. And the word is used in this verse. James chapter 1. It's used in verse 6. We'll read in verse 5 to get some context. James 1, 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Here's a good illustration for us. What is somebody who doubts? James says, don't be like somebody who's doubting. It's somebody who is going on with every every wind that comes along. They're up and down. They haven't settled on anything. They're, they're, They're thrown upside down by what they're hearing, and so they're unsettled about this. And this is what Jude is referring to in verse 22. He says, have mercy on people like this who are weighing and doubting. They've been put off their foundation, as it were. I believe these are the kinds of people that the book of Proverbs refers to when it talks about the simple. Somebody, again, who is very open to different ideas and they don't have either the maturity or the knowledge to be able to refute those ideas and come down in a firm position. And so James' instruction, or Jude's instruction rather for us in Jude 22 about people in the middle now who have been upset by this intrusion and these intruders who are teaching something else is to have compassionate mercy on those that are struggling with these doubts. We must show mercy to those who doubt what is right. What kind of people are these? This might be like people within the church or people within your realm of influence that have serious questions maybe about Christianity. Maybe they, they, they have been influenced and they're wondering, can I really trust the Bible? Maybe they've been influenced and they're wondering about if God is good, why do people suffer? Maybe they're wondering about why God gave me desires that he would tell me can't be legitimately fulfilled. And they're wrestling and questioning, and struggling. And Jude says, here's your approach to them. Show compassion. Show mercy to them. These people that ask questions like this are often young people, young adults, 
growing into adulthood, when the light begins to turn on for them, that there are other ways of thinking out there. Maybe those influences begin to encroach upon them. And I want to tell you that false teachers go after the naive like that. Those not grounded, those not building themselves up like in verse 21 or verse 20, uh, 20 and 21. So what should we do? We should show compassion. Here's what compassion looks like. It's okay for them to ask that question. Sometimes I think we can get a little stirred up by that and think that they shouldn't ask those questions. Those aren't healthy questions. And even shut down a genuine question like that. How could you think that way? How could you think it was any other way? We shouldn't make people feel like heretics for asking a question about the faith. We should actually invite those questions of people who are genuinely doubting and they have sincere questions and they need to find answers. Because if we don't try to answer those questions, they're going to go somebody else, somewhere else to find the answer. And typically those places are only going to lead them in darker places. So the question for us, church, is this. We must be careful, even among our own community, that we guard against a judgmental kind of atmosphere that prohibits any kind of questioning about Christian truth. We must prevent that kind of atmosphere that says it's not right to ask questions. It's actually merciful and gracious to invite those questions and seek to help those that are doubting and be merciful toward them. In some Christian settings, there's such a zeal to to preserve Christian doctrine, which, which is true and which is right. But that zeal can be confused with the fact that therefore you should never question Never question the the truth of this. And I would just put this to you. Do you ever really believe something without first questioning it or doubting it? How long has it taken you to come to a settled, solid conclusion on what you believe about the Scripture and and about the truth of God and, and about even your own personal lifestyle? That's a process that took time and and thought and, and I hope discussion with other people. And when other people find themselves doubting that way, it is the wise, mature believer that shows mercy and doesn't shut down the questioning, but actually invites it and seeks to extend compassion and help. I'm not saying leave them in their doubt. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying don't shut down the question. Jude is saying you have people in this category. You need to invite that. Show mercy to those people. You've received mercy from God. Extend that mercy. Not only are we to show mercy to those who doubt, 
but also we are to show mercy according to verse 23, those that are headed for danger. Verse 23 says that your approach, our approach should be to save others by snatching them out of the fire. This condition demands aggressive action. Whereas showing mercy to those who doubt, I see, is coming alongside of them and trying to steer them in the right direction. This, on the other hand, indicates standing in the way and saying, don't go that way. Snatching them out of the fire. Well, what is the danger? What is the fire that Jude speaks of in verse 23? Well, look back at verse 7, because Jude has spoken of fire earlier in this epistle. In verse 7, he gives this example of God's, God's attitude toward what is being perpetrated in the church, this, this licentious living and denial of Christ's authority. Verse 7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And what's being described there is the fire of hell. The picture of God's judgment, just wrath upon sin. Jude says here at the end in verse 23, you be involved in God's plan to save people that are headed for the judgment of fire, snatching them out of the fire. Well, what is to be done to save them? And why does he speak of it as snatching them out of the fire? Well, if you read the book of Jude at all, you know that Jude constantly is going back to the Old Testament for illustration. He knows his readers are well aware of their Old Testament. They're probably many Jewish people. And so Jude, in, in instructing them, he's pulling on what they already know about the Old Testament and bringing it as illustrative material to make his point. And here's what he does, I believe again, in verse 23, he talks about snatching them out of the fire. I think a Jewish person of that day would would immediately recognize this phrase. And it's a phrase, actually, that we read in Zechariah chapter 3. So go back there with me now. I hope you have had your hand in the Bible there. Zechariah 3, Zechariah is what we call a post-exilic prophet. People of Israel have disobeyed the Lord. They've gone into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. They now are being called to leave Babylon. Many of them have come back to the promised land. There's a leader. His name is Zerubbabel. He's leading the people. And there's a high priest. His name is Joshua. And the prophet Zechariah has been told by God to go and preach to this people that have now come back out of the judgment of Babylon and encourage them to obey and to do what I've called them to do. Build the temple, build the city, worship the Lord. And Zechariah receives this vision from the Lord to encourage that among his people. And this is the vision that Zechariah has and conveys to the people. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him, And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand what? Plucked from the 
fire. And this is his point. Joshua, who represents the people of God, have endured judgment in Babylon for 70 years, but God, as it were, has plucked them out of that judgment and is now setting them back in their land in Jerusalem. Satan would accuse, they don't deserve that, they're not worthy of that, but God himself has taken initiative and plucked them out of that judgment and planted them back in the place where he would have them serve him. And so Jude is picking up on this terminology. Hold your hand in Zechariah 3. We'll be back there again. When Jude says, here's what we are to do, save others by doing like God does, snatching them out of the danger of judgment to put them on the path of blessing. And this is Jude's encouragement to us to show mercy in this way. Now notice that Jude says this in verse 23, to save those people. Don't misunderstand. You and I don't save anybody. God saves. God saves through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, there is no other way to the Father but through me. But God uses us in that process, does He not? as we testify of the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, who we are, what he has done to save us. And this is the sense in which Jude is saying, save these people. These people have been confused by the false teachers among you. They've been, they're heading for judgment. They're heading headlong into sin. You be involved in God's rescue mission. Show mercy to them. How? Stand in their way. Warn them that they too might be snatched out of the fire and set in a place of blessing. Well, how do you show mercy for people like this who are headed for danger? They're headed for judgment of God because they are ignoring what God has said about sin. They are influenced by people who are promoting a licentious lifestyle. Well, how would you save someone who was in a car headed for a bridge that was out? You would do what you could to get to them and tell them to stop. Don't go any further. It sounds like a warning. It sounds like a stern warning. You would be very agitated about that and adamant about that. Puritan writer Thomas Manton said this, when a fire is kindled in a city, we do not say coldly, well, yonder is a great fire. I pray to God it does no harm. He says, in times of of public defection, we're not to sit around and read tame lectures of contemplative divinity. And here's what he means. We don't, when a fire comes, we don't say, oh, there's a fire. I hope everyone's okay. We go and do something. We warn people the fire's coming. He says in the church, or even with people you know in your realm of influence, you don't just sit on your hands and say, well, the fire's coming from them, I hope. Or you don't just get up and give dry lectures about divinity. You appeal to them. Turn and flee from the wrath to come. Run to the Savior. 
Run to Christ. He will save you. There's shelter in him. Those people are in danger. And mercy is actually communicating to them the warning. Warning them to turn them. Now, have you ever viewed your neighbors, your family, your coworkers that way? These are people in grave danger. And God wants to use you to communicate to them the way of escape and, as it were, snatch them out of the fire. You say, well, that's a hard thing. It involves risk. You're right. It does. But what's the consequence if you don't? You see, that's where the mercy comes in. It's a heart of compassion for those in need. And I'm willing to overcome that and warn of the danger. Now, not everybody will respond. Some will hear it and be offended. Some will harden themselves to that. But that's not your issue. That's between them and God at that point. Jude says, have mercy on those who are headed for danger. James speaks of this in James chapter 5. I'll read it for you. You can turn there if you'd like. James chapter 5, James says in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's compassion. But there's a final group in Jude. Not only are we to show mercy to those who doubt and those who are headed for danger, but finally we're to show mercy to those that are actually deceived by sin. Look at the end of verse 23. Here's the third category. By the way, I think there's an escalation in what Jude is talking about. Those who doubt need direction. Those who are headed for danger, they need the warning. And now here are those that are actually deceived and they're ensnared by their sin. They need compassion, but you must be cautious in your attitude or in your approach. End of verse 23, he says, To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are those who have fallen for this false teaching and false living being perpetrated by certain ones among the church. Even here we are to extend mercy, but we are to beware of the influence. Beware that this might rub off on you. He says, show mercy with fear, verse 23. What is the fear? Fear who? Fear what? Again, there's some discrepancy among interpreters in this verse. Some would say that this is the fear of God. You should show mercy to these people while maintaining a proper fear of God that keeps you distant from their sin. I see that, but I don't think that's Jude's primary understanding. I think the fear that Jude is talking about here is show them mercy and fear that you might just as well be in their condition. 
fear about the fact that they've had influence on other people that you know, and these are the ones suffering under the influence of these teachers, and it might be you, so don't think you're above where they are. You fear the kind of influence this teaching can have. And fear the teaching that contaminates. You are to show mercy with this kind of fear for for the contamination, and you are hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What is that? Go back to Zechariah 3. We read the end of verse 2, how the Lord said that Joshua was like a brand plucked from the fire, pulled right out of the fire of God's judgment. Verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel and he's clothed with what? Filthy garments. I don't mean to be crass. There's a great deal of scatological realism in this passage. But literally it's talking about garments, undergarments, stained. These are filthy rags. Verse 4, the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, remove these filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken what? Your iniquity away from you. So tell me, what do those filthy garments in Zechariah chapter 3 picture? Iniquity, we're told in verse 4. Iniquity, that word in the scripture is for, for vile kinds of sin. Sensual passion. God says, take those filthy garments away and put on him clean, righteous garments. And it's the beautiful picture of what we sang in that hymn right before the message. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. And Jude again, I think with this passage in mind, if you go back to Jude 23, he says this, to others show mercy, fear their influence, and make sure you hate their sin. These garments stained by the flesh. In fact, garment there is the word for undergarment. And so he's picking up on this idea of the fact that that there is this this filthy garment. And it, it, it stems from the hearts of these people, no doubt. But it has a contaminating influence. I mean, you trace that thought through the Old Testament. You think of even what the Lord had said about about the leper and their leprosy and how even their garments were unclean and had to be treated very carefully. And, and the Lord is, is picturing this, how, how sin contaminates and how never think you're above it. Never think you're too good to be where other people are in their sin. So Jude says you must show mercy to people who are deceived and they're trapped in their sin. How do we show mercy to these kinds of people? They're they're given over to their sin and I don't want to be contaminated. Well, I think we need to avoid the attitude of rejoicing over people who have rejected God's truth and are trapped in their sin and thinking they'll get what they deserve someday. And honestly, haven't you ever felt that way? Well, those people are going to get what's coming to them someday. How dare they do that? 
while that may be true, that is not an attitude of mercy. Our hearts should break for people like that. Indeed, what they do is contaminating, and it's festering, and we see it rolling like a tide through our nation, as it were. But sometimes Christians smugly sit back and say, well, we'll just wait. Wait till the judgment day. You'll see. God says, you must have a heart of mercy toward those people. You want to be cautious about the contamination, but they still need mercy. They still need a heart of compassion. And that you would be able to demonstrate that in some way, perhaps some limited way. I think of the rancor in our society that pops up time and time again between people who are actually, yes, trying to promote what is true and trying to stand against this wave of iniquity in our nation. But when they talk about it, it makes me cringe. Because I understand they're stirred up about it and it's right, but the way they communicate it is expressing all the wrong things. And we as God's people must know how to extend mercy to people who are trapped in their sin. Not excuse it, don't misunderstand me. Not gloss over it. But can we speak what is true in a loving way? Can our manner actually reinforce our message because of how we say it? Keep showing mercy to these people. And what is the ultimate mercy? Even people like this trapped in their sin, they need Christ. The gospel's the answer. Not badgering them and arguing them into a corner. We need to answer their objections. But the only answer is the transforming gospel power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that everyone you meet, no matter how they look or no matter what their agenda is, they need the gospel. And you show them mercy by telling them or sharing with them something about the gospel. And the fact is that since we who believe the gospel have received the mercy of God and will receive his ultimate mercy at the return of the Lord, we of all people should be the one to show that kind of mercy to other people. This is what they need. They need the mercy that we have received. So in our attitude, let's show them the mercy. Whether it be those that doubt and have serious questions and we come alongside them to help direct them, those that are in danger, that are headed the wrong way, and we stand and we warn them, or those that are entirely deceived and gripped in sin, while we are careful of the influence, yet we do not neglect to extend the mercy of giving them the gospel and telling them the truth. We can't merely be indifferent to such people, D. Edmund Ebert said, This quote, it's a lengthy one, but it's a good one. He says, Christians cannot be merely indifferent to such men, nor avoid them with a holier-than-thou attitude, with a deep feeling of compassion for them. They are to act helpfully toward them as opportunity affords. But they must ever be careful not to be brought under the power of the deadly contamination that clings to the practices and surroundings of such individuals. 
The zeal to win souls must be combined with holy wisdom and prudence. That's the idea of avoiding the contamination. But nevertheless, they need the mercy of the gospel. Since we have and ultimately will receive mercy from God, we should be merciful to other people in need. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus means people that show mercy like this actually demonstrate that they're the ones that have genuinely received it. That that I know myself. I know that I am a sinner and what I deserve is justice and punishment, but God is merciful. And because I'm so thankful for that mercy, I'm willing to be compassionate and extend that to other people, no matter where they are. Jesus said, blessed are those kinds of people because they get it. God help us to be people that show mercy. Let's pray.